0: This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producer's credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtafer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there Parallax Views listeners, this is a special just-recorded episode of Parallax Views that was very time-sensitive. Richard Silverstein of the Tikkan Ulam blog returns to discuss the latest violence in Israel-Palestine with a particular focus on the Israeli settler rampage in the Palestinian West Bank village of Huwara. There's a lot of context for what led up to this horrible incident. We'll get into that as well as the incident itself. This is a difficult subject as the village of Huwara was met with burning of cars and houses. As well as reported deaths of Palestinians. So, this was a very time sensitive episode. It was just recorded, and I wanted to get it out there as quickly as possible. With that in mind, let's get right to it with Richard Silverstein of Tikkun Ulam. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been having on uh, quite a bit lately because the news cycle with regards to Israel and Palestine is uh, just, it's going at a breakneck pace right now. Things are very crazy. Um, and I, I myself expected that when Netanyahu got back into power, when you have these figures like Smotrich and Ben Gieber. Uh, sort of running around. So things are are really wild right now. Uh, Richard, how are you doing? And uh, could you give my listeners a brief rundown of the latest developments, including the violence that has erupted in Huara?
1: Well, just on a personal note, uh, covering these heart-wrenching stories, I think that's the word you used, um, is very hard. It takes a toll. And I'm not even a victim uh, or don't even know victims. So I can only imagine the devastation and the trauma that's caused uh, from these uh, events. Um, but, but So let's give some context to what's been going on. Um, about a month ago or so, um, Israel uh, invaded the town of Janine on the West Bank. It's the heartland of Palestinian resistance. And it's the home of the lion's den, which is a new group of Palestinian militants engaged in resistance, uh, violent resistance against Israel. It was trying to um, liquidate or, or, or kill uh, several Palestinian militants who had been engaged supposedly in terror attacks in, in Israel. Um, and then there were Palestinian revenge attacks. After that, oh, I, I should mention eleven Palestinians were killed in Jenin. And then there were Palestinian revenge attacks inside uh, occupied Jerusalem and other places. Um, and and Israel has been going nightly into the villages, um, supposedly to arrest militants. Uh, it's I'm skeptical about who they're going to arrest and why. I think mainly it's to terrorize the Palestinians and to try to uh, subdue them by uh, means of terror. And then, uh, about a couple of days ago, Israel uh, went into a different uh, town, Nablus, one of the main ones in, in the West Bank, and it did the same thing, except this time it basically ransacked uh, the major, the Khazba, which is the major business street in Nablus, um, and it killed uh, another 10 or 11 Palestinians in that attack. And it was, it was just sheer mayhem. It wasn't just trying to capture or kill uh, militants that they were supposedly after, which they did. Uh, But you you could see Israeli armored vehicles just plowing into pedestrians fleeing for their lives. Innocent unarmed uh, pedestrians plowing into them as fast as this armored uh, personal carrier could go. Um, It was wanton murder basically. Um, So and again, in retaliation, this is tit for tat, cyclical kind of uh, attacks and revenge. Uh, a Palestinian uh, shot and killed two uh, settlers um, outside of a Palestinian village called Huwara, and the victims were from one of three settlements, one of three radical violent settlements that surround Huwara, from a place called Harbracha, and they were uh, two brothers who were in a car and they were they were shot and killed. As a result, that evening, 400 settlers came down from the hills into Huara and they set the town on fire. They set 35 homes on fire with the people inside of them. They partially damaged another 40 homes. They murdered one Palestinian in cold blood. And there were 150 injured being treated now at Palestinian hospitals. They danced and celebrated as they did this. They did it with the tacit approval of the army. The army was supposedly going into this town where the uh, Palestinian who had killed these Israelis he was from this village, so that was another motivation for them to attack the village, but the army was supposedly trying to capture this guy, and during that day after the attack, they were trying to find him, and then in the evening the army withdrew. And Actually, there were army soldiers there in the village. They did nothing. There, A story I just read, which I mentioned to you before we started. Uh, It was an eyewitness account of the residents of the village speaking to a progressive Israeli publication. And they said, we were in the top floor of our house as they were setting it on fire. There were three soldiers standing 20 feet away from us, 30 feet away from us, and we begged them to do something. And uh, they uh, they they with sort of lackadaisically tried to stop the settlers. The settlers refused to leave. Then the soldiers left. Um that's really the extent of this. This is state sponsored terror. This is terror with the a wink and a nod from the state and 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 base and, and afterwards in the aftermath of this, and there's been two nights in a row of these attacks on this same village, um there were ministers in this new fascist government that applauded There was one uh, member. Can I interject uh, real
0: quick? My understanding was that there was at least um, one Israeli politician that essentially said the state of Israel uh, should erase the village of Huara.
1: Yes, this is the person I'm going to be talking about. His name is uh, Tzvi Fogel. He's a former uh, general in the Israeli army who was responsible for the West Bank when he was in the army. He has said things like um, the only solution to the Palestinian problem is a bullet in the head. And I'm quoting. And he uh, that was was a couple of years ago when there was an invasion of of Gaza. And he said about this uh, incident that the uh, proper solution is to erase Huara, and the villages must burn. That's what he said. Um, So there are other uh, there are other members of Knesset. Who've said that this was a minor incident and that it shouldn't be blown out of proportion? Then there are other uh, ministers who celebrated the attack, and they, they they not they didn't even bother to deny it. I mean, when Yitzhak Rabin was murdered in 1995, and the far right uh, was responsible for the the assassination, um, at least in that era, they would. Denounce the uh, the the assassination, and they say we had no part of it. We don't approve it. Blah blah blah. Now the gloves are off, and the you see the naked, exposed face of terrorism, fascism, and and uh, I don't know what other words I can use. I sort of I'm I'm at a loss for words about this. So um, one other, just this is a really small sort of portrait of what happened in the account of uh, one of the families that that survived this in Horara. They said, um, when we had our son as a baby, uh, we wanted to get him a pet. So we got a cat and we made a little cat. Know cat house, not in the terms we're talking about, that word, um, across the street or somewhere near their property, and the, the boy would go out to the cat, and he would pet the cat, and they had a wonderful, loving relationship, this boy, little boy and this cat. um, The settlers found the cat that night, and they beheaded the cat. So this reminds me of serial killers i i once read a, a profile of a serial killer and it said that he started out as a very young boy um pulling the wings off of flies and then he graduated to torturing and killing animals this is what they are they're 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 psychopaths they're serial killers um they're uh they're they're monsters um and listen i'm i'm jewish so it is not easy for me to talk about people who claim to be Jewish, I would argue whether they are, but who claim to be Jewish, and I share the same religion with these people. It's uh, deeply, I think we talked about this a little bit in our last session, um, it's deeply disturbing to me to have to, um, and that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate and so angry about this, because I don't want to let um, people like this uh, monopolize my religion and say that they represent my religion. They they don't, um, they they don't represent any value that I recognize. Unless you want to go back to the Bible and talk about all the wars and violence that were committed um, in the Bible. But my uh, my my lodestar in terms of the Bible is the biblical prophets and the um, ethical code that they represented, and that's what most Jews in the world represent. Um, and um, the problem, I think, here is that uh, there's a new government, which is a fascist government. In the past, you could say there was a nominal sort of center-right, sort of Israeli really political. Uh, sort of. there was a center of some kind in Israeli politics. There isn't anymore. There's no center. The opposition is weak. There's no really left on, on the Israeli political spectrum, except for Israeli Palestinians who don't really wield much power. The right has been dominant since 1977. And it only gets worse. Now, one other thing I wanted to talk about was the reaction or lack of reaction in the world at large. Um, until yesterday, no response from from the US government. However, when there were two terror attacks within the last week uh, against Israelis, uh, two acts of resistance against Israelis, the ambassador, U.S. ambassador, was all over Twitter and social media and making statements about how horrified the government was. And our thoughts and prayers were with the victims and their families. And I have nothing against, of course, expressing condolences for, for the victims of violence. However, nothing about the Palestinian, nothing, nothing about Nablus, the massacre in Nablus, nothing about Janine and nothing about Huara. But
0: all of a sudden... I, I was going to say real quick, you never see something like what happened in Huara being described as a terrorist act, uh, which I find that very odd. I think there's a lot of double standards at work.
1: Well, if if you look at Israeli social media and you look at especially the progressive uh, left, maybe anti-Zionist Israelis, which there are many, by the way, um, that those terms are used. Let's talk, I want to give some examples here, which are in the article that I just published in Middle East Eye, which we can mention later. Um, there are, is, the one Israeli called this, and this is an Israeli, right? This is not me. This is not uh, sort of radical left-wing anti-Zionist. He called this uh, government, the Zionist Reich. And he alternated and he said, it's the Jewish Reich. I don't want to call it the Jewish Reich. It's the Israeli Zionist Reich. Um, another called this uh, Kristallnacht. Israeli really a uh, reference to the a Nazi attack on jews uh in 1933 which was a precursor of the holocaust um and um, another is really likened this incident to the cossacks in the 17th century one of the uh one of the groups in the in the society they attacked were jews because the jews were um, represented the Polish nobility and collected taxes from the populace. So there were um, massive terror, uh, what we would call today terror attacks, where tens of thousands of Jews. So this woman said, this is what we're doing now, is a a Ukrainian pogrom, 17th century Ukrainian pogrom. So there are Israelis that are using these terms, who are using terms like terrorism um, and talking about uh, this being a war crime. Um, and it is, even though these are civilians engaging in these acts of terrorism, this is a war crime, plain and simple. On the, you know, according to the legal definition of it. And my hope is that the International Criminal Court, which is investigating Israel for, uh, inter- for war crimes, um, will include this in in the brief against Israel. Uh, not that Israel really cares much. Um, they act as if they have impunity, and nobody will ever hold them account. Now, I wanted to go back to the U.S. government. They finally. Yesterday, Ned Price, the spokesperson of the State Department, the ambassador and the secretary of state, Blinken, uh, finally said that it was terrible what happened. And uh, by the way, there's a State Department representative in Israel, and he said he called for reparations for the uh, villagers in Huara. Never will happen. This Israeli government will never, ever pay reparations. If anything, they would prefer to see the village completely destroyed. Um, And so the U.S. government is feeble and it's useless and is pathetic. And it distresses me no end that I'm a citizen of this country and uh, we cannot manage to take any sort of uh, decisive role in stopping this madness.
0: Why do you think that is like, why is there no real, you know, hard response to the, the rise of uh, really extremist elements in Israel.
1: Well, we have to talk a little bit about the Israel lobby um, and the power that they wield in uh, determining U.S. policy towards Israel-Palestine. Um, when you uh, raise hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in campaign funds and you allocate it to favored candidates as APAC and the Israel lobby uh, groups that raise money uh, for political campaigns, um, then the politicians not only will sit up and listen; they will basically come to you and say, um, "Tell me, to, you know, tell me to jump, but just tell me how high you want me to jump." Um, and um, and and the power is not just in supporting the politicians; the power is in opposing any form of criticism whatsoever, even the most mild criticism of Israel. Those candidates, even Democrats, liberal Democrats. Are attacked and defeated in primaries by pro Israel Democrats. Now, $30 million. We also saw
0: what happened to uh, Ilhan Omar recently with the um, Foreign Affairs Committee. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The the Republicans targeted her because they knew she was a weak link in the Democratic caucus. They knew the Democrats um, disliked her because she was critical of Israel. Uh, and is critical of the Israel lobby. So they targeted her and they removed her from the uh, Foreign Relations Committee. And then a couple of Democrats, the the, the um, minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, uh, said, oh, this is a terrible thing that they did, blah, blah, blah. But Hakeem Jeffries has specifically said that he's engaged in a war against the left wing of the Democratic Party. So uh, his statement was completely uh, complete hypocrisy. Uh, anyway, going back to the lobby, when they spent $30 million in one primary cycle, not a general election, but primary cycle to attack progressive liberal Democrats who've been mildly critical of Israel, this is the kind of power that they wield. So Biden and all the Democratic presidents are captive of the lobby, and the, the the reason is the money that that goes in. They need this the funding for their campaigns, and they cannot afford to buck um, Israel and the lobby. And the lobby um, has j- just enormous power in Washington.
0: And well, I want to. What I'm, do you, out yeah. of curiosity, what do you say when people say that attributing that kind of power? To the Israel lobby or or the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, what do you say to people that say, "Oh, if you're attributing that much power to it and claiming that it has that much control over U.S. policy, you're sort of um, hearkening back to sort of protocols of Zion type conspiracies yeah. or or uh, blaming you know Jewish people for that's, uh, things."
1: That's where I was going when <laughs> you started to talk. Um, I was going to say that this re- this is an absolutely completely unfounded uh, statement I'm I'm not saying and, and, and uh, any progressive that I know is not saying that the Israel lobby wields power over the US government or over U.S society or over the media or whatever you want to say. I'm saying in this particular aspect of U.S foreign policy, Israel Palestine, the lobby has, complete, almost complete control over the agenda. And I'm not saying, you know, an an anti-Semitic statement would be the Jews wield power over American society, the media, they control everything that happens in Congress. That's not what I'm saying. It's a very careful kind of nuanced statement about this particular, this analysis of this particular situation. And I would challenge, Anyone who wants to claim that this isn't true, to uh, prove it that it isn't true, I can I can uh, wield you know scores, if not hundreds, of facts that support my uh, analysis of this situation, and I'm not the only one who's saying this. There are many Israelis who say this. There are many American Jews who say this. So, um, and actually increasing amount. Of Israeli of uh American Jews are agreeing with my position and falling away from the position of the Israel lobby which is uh as as its population as its support uh ages out um, the younger generation of American Jews have a much more uh, uh critical and left-winning approach to uh on Israel or they don't care about Israel because they're they're They'd rather walk away from the whole thing, unlike their elders who have always been engaged with Israel and supporting Israel. It's really, as they age out, it's sort of going away.
0: I also wanted to ask you, and we'll get more into the article again after I, I have you uh, delve into this aspect a little bit, but you know, we, we talk about uh, the settlers, the Israeli settlers uh, in the West Bank. And I think some people, they, they hear the term uh the, the Israeli settlers, and they may not know what that means. So we're talking about uh, settlers that are basically settling, making settlements in the West Bank, and that's a Palestinian territory. So w- why are these settlements happening, and, and what's like the history of, of that? What what do we mean when we say Israeli settlers in the West Bank?
1: We have to go back to 1967, the, uh, the 1967 war between Israel and the Arab states, And after the war, or during the war, Israel conquered the West Bank, which had been in control of Jordan. And Jordan also has a nominal control over the uh, Muslim holy places in East Jerusalem and has since 1948. But Israel conquered East Jerusalem during that war and also conquered the West Bank. And by the way, we 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 could talk about the, uh, the the million or so Palestinians in the Nakba who were um, expelled from Israel in 1948. There were also several hundred thousand Palestinians expelled from the West Bank during '67, which is much lesser known. After that happened, there was a group of Jews who believed that the Israeli victory and returning control of the uh, of the Western Wall, uh, which is the wall of the ancient temple, uh, was some kind of divine, um, divine statement, divine um, signal that the messianic age was on on at hand, and they believed that if they settled all of the ancient biblical lands, which is a lot of the famous uh, sea, uh, towns and, and locations in the West Bank are from the Bible, uh, Bethlehem, uh, uh, Tekoa, where Amos lived, and, and places like that um, are all mentioned in the Bible. And they believed if Israel conquered all of that territory and settled it and made it all into a single state, that, that then the Messiah would come. And they were bolstered by a very famous rabbi uh, who was the chief rabbi of Israel. And um, his sort of theor- theological writings informed this movement, which is called the Movement for the Greater Israel. So hundreds, starting with hundreds of, of settlers moved in and they created these small little uh, improvised settlements. Um, and over the course of, and and, and the government began by, supporting this movement, tacitly supporting it at first because it wasn't technically legal, and then officially starting to support it. And uh, governments like Ariel Sharon, um, who was prime minister for quite a while, uh, encouraged settlements and they bragged, they boasted about how many Israelis that uh, settlers had gone to the West Bank. And they started with 20,000 and then it was 100,000. And now it's uh, if you include uh, Jerusalem, it's 700,000. Israeli uh, Israelis live in colonies. Um, that, And, and so and these... this is
0: pushing out the Palestinians in the process.
1: Right. I was going to say that many of the settlements actually are on privately owned Palestinian land, formerly owned, which were stolen and taken away from them. And one of the processes that the army uses is it will declare, it has the right to declare territory, uh, military zones for fire, firing practice, et cetera. So what they do is they just say, this Palestinian land is now confiscated by the the army for military purposes. And then they move settlers in um and so uh, israel has and these settlements which i mentioned were small improvised now they're actually suburban communities for tel aviv for jerusalem and the roads they built settler only roads and we're talking about apartheid at some point um there are little uh, dirt paths where the Palestinians can travel. And then there are these highways, um, almost super highways, where the settlers can uh, commute into their jobs inside of uh, Israel. And um, so now... uh, the Palestinians live in tiny little villages that are sort of Bantustans. If you look at a map of where the Palestinians live and where the settlers live, it's like, um, you know, if you would look at a map of South Africa and where the uh, the white apartheid government had sent um, um, uh, bl- uh, black uh, South Africans to live in these tiny little Bantustans. And that's what they're doing in Palestine. And the goal, the eventual goal, is to get rid of the Palestinians. And that's why the these acts of terror uh are happening. They want to put the fear of God into Palestinians. They want to force them to leave, expel them, uh make their life so miserable that they can't stand it and they and they leave. Um, or alternatively, uh the Israeli government physically forcing them, expelling them. Um and and by the way, there are several, there's three or four million Palestinians already in refugee camps from 1948 and 67. So um, that that's what they would like to see happen.
0: I also wanted to discuss um, one of the key points in your Middle East Eye article. Uh, you discuss, let me see if I can pull it up here. Oh, You say, during previous Palestinian uprisings, the Israeli government's response while employing excessive use of force when compared to what is going on today probably showed some measure of restraint Uh, So what do you mean by that? Maybe you could elaborate on that a bit more and where things are headed now. I mean, how how are the Palestinians going to react? How could this escalate even further?
1: In the past, uh, there were two intifadas. There was a first intifada in 1987, the second around 2000. Um, In those intifadas, there were terror attacks by or there were acts of resistance by the Palestinians in which Israelis were killed. There were bombings on buses. And the and the death toll on both sides was was very high, um, but there never, ever, was a mass uh, assault against an entire town or village uh, in, in which they deliberately destroyed. Uh, large sections of major uh, Palestinian population center, there was always, uh, you know, there are horrible incidents where Israelis did kill uh, Palestinians, some in cold blood, unarmed Palestinians. Those were terrible, but never on a massive scale like this. And you could always in the past argue, maybe not uh, realistically, but uh, the attempt to argue was these incidents in uh, first and second intifada, if there were any excesses by the Israelis, they were uh, discrete incidents that didn't represent a government policy. You can't you can't argue that anymore. Uh, destruction and terrorism. I'm now calling Israel a state, uh, a terrorist state. Um, that is what this policy is. It is wholesale anarchy. And by the way. The Israeli right likes to talk about the uh, protesters that are demonstrating against the current government as left-wing anarchists. Even the right-wing opponents they call left-wing anarchists. But the anarchism is on the part of the state. There is no law in what is happening on the West Bank that the Israelis are engaged in. There's no, it's pure chaos and anarchy. And it's government policy which is insane when you think about it—that uh, that a government policy would be to have no law, to um, let vigilante militias uh, maraud through um, through uh, towns and villages. This is now state policy.
0: And just to note here, uh, because I think this is important, just to give context, uh, within the past year, so twenty twenty two, there were a total of eight hundred forty nine. Uh, incidents of uh, settler violence, total attacks, eight hundred forty-nine. Uh, five Palestinians killed by suspected settlers. Two hundred twenty-eight attacks leading to casualties. Six hundred twenty-one attacks leading to damage and property. This is. Um, it seems like this could only get worse. Worse going forward.
1: Well, in addition, um, uh, let's say add another important statistic, which is that in the past year. 150 Palestinians have been murdered by the army or by settlers. In the past two months, 55 Palestinians have been murdered. And if you extrapolate that to all of 2023, that would be 600 Palestinians murdered if it continues on the same scale. So, um, yeah, this is this is mass murder, basically.
0: Let's talk about... Um some of the reporters that have been talking about this. Um uh, I know you mentioned to me and you also mentioned in your Middle East eye article uh Joshua Briner from Heretz. Uh his story is, you know, uh important, I think, in this um in, in this case, if you could talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, um there may have been more Israeli reporters in Hawara, but I only know about two of them. And one was Josh Briner, who is the uh the West Bank correspondent for Haaretz. Um, and uh, he writes a lot about uh, these types of incidents that happen. And he was actually in Huara with another reporter and uh, he was walking the streets. And all of a sudden he saw someone who looked like an Israeli soldier who fired a stun grenade at him. And then he followed the firing of the stun grenade with actual live ammunition firing directly at him. And Josh Brenner uh, tweeted that never before in his career as a reporter has anyone directly fired ammunition at him, let alone an Israeli soldier. And they took pictures of the soldiers. And um, I'm not sure if that's in the Middle East I story, but it is in my blog post, which I wrote about the incident. Um, There's a picture of the soldier in his uniform And I didn't want to jump to conclusions, so I asked another Israeli reporter, is this an IDF uniform? And he said, yes, it is. Um, I've I've tweeted at the IDF spokesperson and asked him to confirm or deny it, and he hasn't responded at all. And I just last night tweeted at Josh Bryner, so we'll see whether he's done any follow-up to find out what happened. But again, this is another example of, of the Army Colluding, the army actually physically attacking reporters, and this is another bit more of the settlers. They hate the media, they even hate the police, they hate the army because the army restrains them. Now, you you know, keep in context what I just said about the army colluding with the settlers and the attacks on Hoara. There, the settlers dislike the army because of the minimal amount of restraint that they exercise against them. So um, the fact that an actual Israeli soldier would try to kill uh, a reporter, we're we're in new terrible territory here.
0: I was going to say, I've been reading reports lately uh, that, you know, even Israelis themselves that are, you know, showing dissent uh, when it comes to what's happening in their country, uh, even they're facing uh, a a lot of issues. Um, I know there's a case of the Jewish anti-Zionist activist uh, Jonathan Pollack recently. It seems like uh, even Israeli citizens are uh, filling the clamp down now.
1: Yeah, Pollack went to the West Bank and he spoke at a gathering um, supporting Palestinians who were being attacked by uh, settlers. And because of the talk that he gave, he was arrested. (laughs) Um, And there was a point at which he, he worked for Haaretz and he had to actually live in the Harris office building, because that was the only place where they wouldn't go in and and arrest him. If he left, they they would arrest him. And uh, the Shin Bet uh, called the Israeli domestic uh, spy agency, the Shin Bet uh, summoned him for interrogation and uh, wanted to charge him with incitement this is when uh, left-wing Israelis actually support and show solidarity for Palestinians. This is called incitement to terrorism. Um, um, and, and Israeli right-wing uh, figures who speak like Zvi Fogel, uh, who I mentioned earlier, they're never called to uh, account. Um, and and the, the head of the opposition actually said that Zvi Fogel should be uh, in prison. Um, but it will never happen because he represents the uh, the government that's in power. So yes, is really uh, on the left pay a huge price uh, for for what they try to do.
0: I also wanted to note that uh, in the Middle East, I article you wrote, uh, you discuss uh, Palestinian journalist uh, Mohammed Shahada, uh, who calls this uh, you know these events in Huara you know uh, a pogrom and a massive pogrom. Uh, and I believe that uh, Josh Briner actually used the term pogrom as well. Is it fair to use that term? Because I, I know there's people that will say, oh, you can't use that term. But but
1: actually, there are many Israelis that are using the term pogrom. Um, they're also calling it a lynch. Uh, the meaning is a little bit different in, in, in Hebrew. But, um, you know, if we think of lynching of uh, African-Americans in the South. Uh, this is the kind of terms that they're using uh, to describe it. And uh, for, for viewers who may not know what a pogrom is, it, it was the word is Russian. And it was used to describe the um, very similar attacks on Jewish settlements in Russia at the turn of the century. Um, the Tsar was under uh, political difficulties. And so he created this uh, Protocol of the Elders of Zion and pretended that the Jews were trying to take over Russia and take over the world. And this was one of the uh, pieces of literature that the Nazis used to justify their campaign of hatred against Jews. So uh, the word pogrom is totally apt in this circumstance. Just because Jews were victims in 1903 and there were pogroms in Kishinev, does not mean that Jews cannot turn out to be the perpetrators of pogroms. And in this case, these Israeli Jews, these settlers, I call them Judeo-terrorists, are engaging in the same exact type of behavior. And I'll say something a little bit radical here. I believe that if they thought they could get away with it, they would engage in the same type of behavior that uh, the Tsar engaged in and that the Nazis engaged in. Um, the only difference might be instead of actually exterminating Palestinians, they would expel them because um, they couldn't get away with it in terms of world uh, world opinion. Uh, but Israel goes right up to the edge to, to what they think they can get away with uh, regarding the Palestinians. And uh, they're always testing the waters to see if they can go a little farther. And that's why we have this horrible uh, things happening in the West Bank.
0: You also talk a little bit about, uh, you know, Bezalel, Smote Rich, Uh, who I believe he's the minister of finance in Israel. Uh, Can you discuss uh, his reaction to these events?
1: Well, Ben Gavir uh, pretended uh, he took this holier-than-thou attitude. Like he said, oh, settlers, don't take the law into your own hands. That's what the the army is for. The army will take care of these uh, Palestinians. But on the other hand, he said that um, Israel should... Uh, resume the policy of assassinating the leaders of Palata- Palestinian groups, the leaders of Hamas, the leaders of Fatah, um, that Israel should resume a, a policy of assassinations and that it should root, it should root out the, um, it should assassinate them and also the inciters. Uh, I don't know exactly what he means, but he probably means just any leader of, of the Palestinians whatsoever. Um, so that's the kind of statements that are being made. Smotrich uh, supports what happened. Uh, I don't remember exact words of any statement that he made, but these are the these. I was going to say
0: there was a there was a translation of um, a tweet. I believe it was retweeted by um, oh, yes. Israeli journalist, Ido Conrad. I can read it really quickly. Yes, yes. Uh, apparently, he said uh, the village of Hawara must be erased today. Enough with statements about building and strengthening settlements. The deterrence we've lost must be regained immediately with no place for mercy. I I mean, that's really extreme.
1: Yeah. So that was one of the uh, leaders of the settlements. This is one of the less extreme. Leaders of the settlements. He's a sort of a responsible adult in quotes. Um, he that's what he said, and then Smotris liked it as a tweet on on uh, Twitter. My, so my apologies uh, for getting that wrong. Or no, no, no no, 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 no problem. So um, th- these examples are popping up all over the place. The level of hatred, uh, and, and you know what, we we need to talk about. Other places where this has happened, talk about Rwanda, talk about Bosnia, talk about Cambodia. This is how genocide starts. This is the demonizing, the the, the idea of turning human beings into subhuman, uh, you know, the Nazis called Jews vermin and rats and things like that. And that's what they're doing to the Palestinians. And this is the way genocide starts. It starts with hatred, it starts with mass violence, and then it morphs and it transforms and it turns into um, the types of horrible uh, phenomenon that have happened in the, the places I mentioned. So we're on the road towards that, um, how long it will take and where it will go and what the actual events will be uh, that happen, you know, maybe not be known Totally. But um, now is the time if there was ever a time to stop Hitler. It was before 1932 and the Germans didn't understand what was gonna, what Hitler was going to do. They didn't understand it. We now know from history what does happen and how it happens. The world is now standing by and not doing anything, essentially. Now is the time for the world to do something and say something. My My guess is that they won't. And then we'll have something similar happen um, to what happened when the Germans didn't stop the
0: Nazis. Just a few more things real briefly here. We have uh, the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, releasing a statement uh, telling the settlers, you know, don't take the law into your own hands. And you respond pretty um, pretty harshly to that, saying, you know, what Netanyahu says is irrelevant. Uh, maybe you could explain what you mean by that. You You say straight up, He's relevant and these settlers aren't listening to him.
1: The settlers are I call the settlers the state itself, basically. They've taken over the state. They've captured it. Um, so Netanyahu is basically a figurehead. Um, anything that he says that they don't like, they ignore. He has no he doesn't exercise any control. Um, the state is is hopeless in the face of all this. And what I mentioned about the army, if if Netanyahu wanted the army to ex- exercise some restraint or, or create some sense of order uh, or restrain the settlers from what they've done, he would have done it. And he. that's why there's a collusion going on. And when Netanyahu makes statements like this, the settlers know it's a wink and a nod to them. Um, And and it's uh, secretly or privately Netanyahu was on the phone and telling them, you know, we bless what you've done. And the other thing is that Netanyahu is between a rock and a hard place, because even if he you want to argue that Netanyahu is the responsible adult on the far right, um, he is he is a prisoner of the far right parties which brought him to power, he's never had to rely on the far right in his past governments—five, uh, four governments prior to this. But I was going to say,
0: un- it seems like he's unleashed something that he can no longer control.
1: Yeah, exactly right. He helped unite two right wing parties to ensure that they would get into the Knesset. The, the parties that uh, Batzalis, Motrich, and Ben Gvir represent. He he brokered. A deal where they united, and that's how they got, um, I think they got 13 seats in the Knesset. And this made them the third largest party in the Knesset, and they were the power brokers. And that's why uh, Smotrich and Ben-Gavir are actually senior ministers in the government. That's why Smotrich is actually assigned to control what goes on in the West Bank. Everything that is going to happen in the West Bank, this former terrorist is going to control. He is, uh, Netanyahu is a captive of these far-right forces. So he can say whatever the hell he wants. It means nothing. Um, and, and so words don't matter when it comes to Israeli politics. What matters is deeds. And you can see the policy of the state by its deeds and not by its words.
0: I also wanted to get your opinion on uh, how the international community has been reacting to, you know, these, these recent events. And also uh, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on Uh, The UN.
1: Well, let's talk about a recent event, which was that uh, the United Arab Emirates, which is now um, has a seat on the UN Security Council representing the Arab states, Uh, it was approached by the Palestinians, the uh, Palestinian Authority, uh, run by Mahmoud Abbas, and asked to sponsor a resolution uh, demanding an end to settlements. It's a statement that's been made hundreds, thousands of times in the past, over the past couple of decades by the U.S. government, by the way. Um, And uh, Biden scurried around and Blinken scurried around uh, and they run up to the vote and they did not want to have to veto this resolution, which is what they were going to do again on behalf of Israel. And because of the pressure of the Israel lobby, they felt they could not Uh, Obama once abstained for this kind of resolution at the end of his presidency when he didn't really I don't know if I'm allowed to say he didn't really give a shit about Israel um, and was so and hated Netanyahu so much that they abstained from a resolution like this. But Biden can't afford to. And so they scurried around and they worked out some kind of mealy mouth compromise under which Abbas would be invited to the White House. The Israelis promised this is the day before they went into Nablus and killed 11 Palestinians, that they would reduce the uh, nightly raids on the West Bank. And there were other provisions. And in return, the Palestinian Authority asked UAE to to um, re- withdraw the resolution, and they did. And then, last Sunday, the U- US uh, had a security summit in Jordan. Um, Egypt, Jordan, the PA, Palestinian Authority, and Israel. Uh, they had a security summit at which they were supposed to be talking about how to implement all the uh, arrangements that were made under the Blinken deal. And the PA, despite the attack in Nablus, went to the summit. And then the representative of the PA said, um, we don't have an army like Israel has. This These kinds of summits are the only way that we can get anything uh, on behalf of our people. So the U.N., is essentially uh, neutered, and um, the Arab states themselves are not exercising any leadership here. That Jordan, which nominally um, you know is a spiritual uh, uh, guardian of the uh, of Haram al Sharif, the uh, Al Aqsa Mosque, um, plays almost no role, no no serious role, and the United Nations as well, the European Union, all of them are, are ineffective. And and useless, and they're standing by as fascism uh, takes over Israel.
0: What do you see is the, you know, near term future with regards to Israel and Palestine? I mean, it, it seems like you know we haven't used the term Third Intifada a lot in in you know, the, the discourse around these issues. But it seems like we're in a state where I think Palestinians are resisting more and more, and they're not just going to resist non-violently, um, you know, when things like the massacre in Nablus happens.
1: Well, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, I'm, I'm leery about talking about a third intifada, not because I think that level of violence won't happen. It's because... The Intifadas are, in the past, were mass Palestinian movements of resistance. Um, one example is the Great March of Return that happened four or five years ago in, in Gaza, where um, Palestinians nonviolently approached the uh, border fence and um, the Israelis mowed them down. Uh, 250 Palestinians were killed. I think that we are now in a state where, even if the Palestinians resist, Israel is hell-bent on some kind of policy that is eradication, either eradication by, uh, by killing or eradication by expulsion, physical expulsion. Um, I think the state, unlike in the First and Second in Intifada, the state is mobilized for some horrific uh, operation. Against the Palestinians, so that's why um, I think it's a, a, just a whole new level of 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 awfulness um, that that you can't even use the term Indifada to, to describe it. The Palestinians are going to resist. There will be armed resistance. There will be Israelis killed. That's what happens in these situations. Um, but. Um, It's too horrifying to even use a term like antifada.
0: I have to ask, because I know when listeners of our past conversations have listened, uh, you know, occasionally I'll get an email saying, you know, how does Richard, how is he able to cover these topics? Um, You know, because you're regularly writing articles and and blogging about this. And I guess a lot of people think, my God, I, I mean, this kind of work must be in its own way soul crushing just constantly having to go through and research and report on this massive level of violence and this just horrific situation so what is it that sort of drives you and keeps you going um i mean do, do you have any hope
1: uh i'm sorry uh sighing is only is the only response here um i don't have hope really um I did once have hope uh, when I was younger. I'm in my early 70s. When I was 15 or 20 years old, I I had stars in my eyes about Israel and thought it could be a liberal democracy. I thought a Jewish state and a democratic state uh, were in harmony or could be in harmony. I believed that there were Israelis that would create that kind of state um, and that if we only worked hard enough that there could be a government that would be uh, liberal and supportive and compromise with the palestinians i don't believe any of that anymore um i'm very depressed in a political sense um and but but on the other hand you know it says in the uh, jewish liturgy um it talks about a still small voice and i don't know if i know where in the prayer book it comes from but i don't it's some reference to a statement in the Bible, probably by one of the prophets. And um, that's what I see myself as. Um, I'm not the New York Times. I'm not the, not even Haaretz. um, So I don't have the kind of um, presence or visibility that they have. But then again, I'm writing things that they will never write. Um, And the other thing that's important to know is that I'm, not alone i may be a still small voice but the way in which i get the stories that i report which violate military censorship and violate gag police gag orders and i'm reporting on crimes that are committed by the army and i'm reporting on uh, other social issues like uh, abuse of women and rape and and, uh, powerful male uh, figures that get away with various types of criminal behavior including politicians um, and I'm reporting on failures of Israeli military operations um, is because Israelis convey the information to me. So while I'm very downbeat and a sort of a global sense about Israel, I continue to feel that there's work to be done. And I want to be a witness. I don't want anyone to be able to say um, there weren't any people doing what I do. Um, and that uh, the situation was hopeless from <clears throat> from the start, and that um, uh, there was never any opposition. There were ne- never anyone asking questions. There were never any dissidents. Um, I've been doing this since two thousand three, and uh, it does at times it becomes very hard. Um, there are stories which I've reported, um, for example, about women who've. Uh, been been abused and and raped, and I can't do certain stories anymore. Uh, and, and you know people come to me with powerful stories which need to be told, and because of my personal kind of psychological uh, uh, feelings about it, now some of the stories I can't tell. Um, because well, it's, it's, it's like tearing into the heart of darkness in a lot of ways. It is. It's it's peering at ugliness it's peering at not just individual ugly people who do ugly things, but it's peering into the system that permits it, that doesn't hold people accountable. I'm not just talking about what we were talking about, about the Israeli-Palestinian. I'm talking about all of Israeli society, the corruption, the violence against within Israeli society, within Israeli Jews uh, and Israeli-Palestinians as well. So um, that is all very difficult and I have to try to retain my, uh, my sort of psychological center as best I can. Um, but I have to tell you, reading the stories about the cat, the beheaded cat and reading um, and watching the flames burning in Huara um, and watching the settlers. You know, settlers in front of the burning houses prayed, you know, Jews pray three times a day So they prayed the evening prayer in front of Palestinian homes that they had set on fire. It's just, you know, I can't I can't even begin to I don't have the words to describe it. Um, If you can imagine someone, uh, you know, in the U.S., you know, Christians going to a black community and setting things on fire, God forbid, and then having a prayer service, you can't you can't conceive of this kind of horror Um, and yet that's what's that's what's happening it's hard it's very hard
0: well i want to thank you for the work that you're doing richard uh i i think it's very much appreciated by my listeners and i i think it does make some level of difference uh to many people so i want to thank you for that and i i just want to ask in closing here what do you hope listeners uh, get out of these conversations we've been having I think this has been your uh, third or fourth time on the show. What are you hoping that listeners are getting out of these conversations that we're having?
1: Well, one thing I want to uh, let your listeners know is I'm going to start putting up information about how they can donate to uh, offer humanitarian relief and medical relief to the residents of Hoara. For a couple of days now, I've been trying to find Uh, funds that were set up, and unfortunately, I haven't even been able to find Palestinian funds or anyone uh, doing this. So I have found a couple, and uh, I'm going to be putting them up on my social media accounts and maybe on my blog. So um, there are ways that they can donate. Um, In terms of the broader uh, things that I would like listeners to get out of this is I would just like Them, despite the horrors and despite the sadness and depression of all of this, um, we have to engage with it. We cannot let Israel, uh, we cannot let the Israel lobby control the discourse here. We have to support liberal Democrats uh, financially and otherwise when they run. We have to support the squad. We have to support Bernie Sanders. Uh, These are the Democrats who will even engage in some kind of modest calls for restraint against Israel. So those are the kinds of things that they can do. They can read publications like Jewish Currents and Electronic Intifada and my blog, Tikkun Olam. Stay aware of what's going on and um, and bring these conversations to your friends, to your family, um, to the extent that you can. A lot of families uh, can't have these kinds of discussions because of the right-wing pro-Israel people, Uh, but um, do what you can. Do the best you can.
0: And I was going to say, if people want to keep up with your work, uh, they can go to the on Ulam blog at richardsilverstein.com. And you're also on social media as well, Twitter.
1: Twitter, my uh, my handle is Richard S 1052 I'm on Facebook. And uh, yeah, and uh, oh, uh, the article is in Middle East Eye, if people want to read it. The, uh, it's on the homepage of Middle East Eye.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you found my conversation with Richard Silverstein informative. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael to Parallax Views with J.J. Michael The way out is not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit if nothing else if we don't do it others will be doing it like So, you, know, you know we have to confront the problem